Hi everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors uh, at HMCC of Jakarta and it's my privilege to preach the Word of God to us today. Today we're finishing up our two-part sermon series on worship. So last week we gave an overview of worship, answering three questions. First, what is worship? Worship is our response to what we value most. Second, what is Christian worship? Christian worship is seeing and responding to the worthiness of God in Christ. Christian worship is God-centered, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled. We worship the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And then third, how should we worship God as Christians? As Christians, we worship God with our hearts, with our whole lives, and with God's people. So that was our overview of worship from last week. And today, we're going to look specifically at corporate worship. So let's get right into it. Imagine that you're on a basketball team. You wear a basketball jersey, you carry around a basketball, you shoot free throws by yourself at a nearby basketball court, but you never gather to practice with other teammates, and you never gather to play games together. In other words, you never assemble as a team. Are you really part of a basketball team then? Are you really experiencing basketball the way it's supposed to be? No, basketball is a team sport. So even though you can and should practice on your own, you can't say that you're on a basketball team unless you regularly gather with your teammates. And in fact, you can't really experience basketball the way it's supposed to be played unless you're playing as a team. In a similar way, yes, we should worship God with our hearts and with our whole lives as individuals, but we must never forget that we're also called to worship God together with his people as a church. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, we see this one phrase repeated over and over and over again to the Corinthian church. When you come together. When you come together. It's repeated five times in the span of 18 verses. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 18, what's meant by that becomes explicitly clear. It says in verse 18, when you come together as a church. In its original language, the word church actually means assembly. So we cannot have an assembly or a church that never assembles. And in fact, when Christ saved us, he saved us into a family with other brothers and sisters, into a flock with other sheep, into a body with other members. In other words, worshiping God is a team sport. He designed worship not only to be individual, but it's ultimately meant to be corporate. In the new heavens and new earth, we don't see isolated individuals worshiping God by themselves, but we see a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, language, worshiping God in one unified voice. In the New Testament, worship has generally been understood then as both corporate worship and all of life worship. Corporate worship refers to the worship of God in the context of the body of believers or the gathered church. And all of life worship refers to every other context for worship of God in the life of an individual believer. So last week, we gave an overview of worship, focusing more on the all of life worship. And I encourage you to refer back to that sermon for a more holistic context for this topic of worship. But then today, we're going to focus specifically on the corporate aspect of worship, particularly the weekly assembling of the church, the coming together as a church for weekly corporate worship. So the one thing for today is let's come together as a church to bolster our worship of God. 
When I say bolster, I'm not talking about a pillow, but I mean to strengthen, reinforce, boost, fortify, renew, support, sustain, help, increase. And I just couldn't find another word that encompassed all of that like this word bolster. So let's come together as a church to bolster our worship of God. Uh, each week, we usually preach expositional sermons through one passage of Scripture, but today we're going to take a different approach and look at various passages to address issues related to this topic of corporate worship. We'll look at corporate worship in three parts. First, pictures of the church in corporate worship. Second, purposes of the church in corporate worship. And then third, practices of the church in corporate worship. And just to give credit to where it's due, along with my own study and experience and our church's influence, much of my understanding of what the Bible has to say about corporate worship has been influenced by other pastors and writers like Matt Merker, Mark Dever, Legan Duncan, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, and so much more. Uh, so many more. So much of what I'll share today is going to be colored by these different influences, but all rooted ultimately in Scripture. So first, pictures of the church in corporate worship. The Bible gives many metaphors or pictures of the church. I've already mentioned some of them, but we're going to focus on two pictures of the church and how that affects our understanding of corporate worship. First, the church is the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says this, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Christ, we are members of the household of God. We are family. But if we think about the context of this passage, this really shouldn't be taken for granted. Right before this, the Apostle Paul references the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles or the non-Jews and how Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between them. In the first century, the differences and hostilities between Jews and Gentiles were almost on every facet. They had historical baggage, ethnic prejudice, religious hostilities, and cultural separations. It seemed like nothing in this world could have brought these two people together, people groups together. But in himself, through the cross, through him, Christ killed their hostility towards one another in order to make them one family in Christ. So when we say now that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not just some Christian jargon or spiritual synonyms for men and women, but that family reality ought to be expressed in our depth of love and commitment towards one another even those who are different than us, because of our common bond in Christ. So how should that picture of the church affect our understanding of corporate worship? First, when we gather, we remember that Christ died to make us family with one another. When we look around and we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, we begin to realize how precious is this family to Christ, that he would lay down his life for to create this family. And so how precious this family ought to be to us. Christ didn't just die for me, but Christ died for us. Gathering together takes us out of our own self-focus to remind us that God is not only my Father, but He is our Father. Second, when we gather, we testify to the supernatural power of the gospel to bring such different people into one family. The world can explain communities that are built around common life stage, common socioeconomic class, common educational background, common passions and causes, common life experiences. But when there's a visible community 
of such different people who may have even had former hostilities with one another, the world cannot explain it. The only commonality that should be able to explain our whole community as a church is our common commitment to Christ and our common faith in the gospel. Third, when we gather, we strengthen our identity and relationships as family. For example, in my family, you know, even though life can get very busy, we've made eating family meals together as a family a priority. You know, sometimes my son doesn't want to join us for dinner because he'd rather watch TV. But then I get down and I look at him and I remind him, son, we're a family. So we're going to eat dinner as a family. And when we eat together, we wait for each other, we pray together, we talk with one another, we laugh together, and we enjoy one another. Except when the kids are screaming and crying, refusing to eat from time to time. But by and large, family meals strengthen our corporate identity as family and strengthen our relationships with one another as a family. And so as a church, our corporate worship gatherings also remind us of our corporate identity and strengthen our relationships with one another as a local family of God. So the church is the family of God, and the church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, our citizenship is not ultimately in Indonesia or in the U.S. or in some other country, but our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to a kingdom not of this world. The church is made up of former enemies of God, whom he's reconciled to himself by the death and resurrection of his son. And now Christ is our king, and we cry out with all his people, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The New Testament calls us ambassadors for Christ. So local churches are embassies or outposts of the kingdom of heaven. So how should that picture of the church affect our understanding of corporate worship? First, we gather as ambassadors and not consumers. We don't come to consume and experience or to be entertained or to criticize different aspects of the corporate worship, but we come together to honor our king and to make him known. We are ambassadors. We come to be reminded together of the heavenly country that we belong to, the king we soar allegiance to, and the mission our king has given us. Second, we gather to communicate God's declarations. Just as an ambassador speaks on behalf of of the country he represents, the church also speaks on behalf of the heavenly king we represent. When we confess our sin in corporate prayer, we declare God's judgment that sin deserves his wrath. When we rejoice in song together for the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ, we declare God's acceptance of us in Christ. When we sit under the reading and preaching of God's word, we declare that God's word has absolute authority in our lives and that we're called to respond to it. And third, We gather to exemplify the culture of God's kingdom, which is countercultural to the kingdoms of this world. Our times of corporate worship as a church are gatherings of exiles who are living on foreign soil. This place is not our true home. We sing our national anthem in our songs of worship. We teach our constitution in the preaching of God's word. We issue passports to new citizens of God's kingdom through baptism. We enjoy a foretaste of the future national feast in the Lord's Supper. The gathering of God's people is a preview 
though flawed, but it's a preview of what the kingdom of God and the new heavens and new earth will look like. When we gather together for corporate worship, it is a trailer of the movie to come. So here's the first life application. Commit to be a member of a local church. You know, as we've been talking about the weekly assembling of the church, the coming together as a church for weekly corporate worship, and how that pictures us as the family of God that Christ died to create, and as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, it should become increasingly clear to us then that committing to be a member of a local church is one of the most fundamental applications. We cannot come together as a church if we haven't committed ourselves to be a member of a local church to assemble with. So if you're not a member of a local church, or if you are, but you don't regularly assemble with them for corporate worship, then we need to honestly ask ourselves, why not? Why not? The New Testament doesn't have a paradigm for Lone Ranger Christians. If Christ died to include us into his family, then we shouldn't act as if we're spiritual orphans. We shouldn't say, I'm all alone. We're not. He's with us. He invited us. He made us into that family. So let's join in as the family of God. So first, pictures of the church. And then second, purposes of the church in corporate worship. So why does God gather us for corporate worship? In short, God gathers us for exaltation, edification, and evangelism. So first, God gathers us for exaltation. To exalt someone is to raise high, to elevate by praise, to glorify that someone. Psalm 111 verse 1 says this, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Psalm 149 verse 1 says this, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. Throughout history, God's people have exalted God in praise and worship together as an assembled people. Can we praise and worship God individually? Yes, and we should. But the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. After God brought the Israelites back from exile and they rebuilt the temple, this is how their worship of God is described in Ezra chapter 3, verses 11 and 13. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, and the sound was heard far away. One Old Testament scholar comments that the noise of temple worship was legendary. Now, what if our corporate worship of God could be described like that? Where the sound of our praises to God were heard far away throughout the whole city. That our corporate worship of God was legendary. But this isn't just loudness for loudness sake. But God's people always have a reason to exalt him. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward his people. In light of the good news of Jesus Christ, we know that is absolutely true of God. He is good. His steadfast love towards us endures forever. We know that in Christ. So how can God redeem people, not exalt him with all that we are? Imagine the thundering sound of a, of a sports stadium where the whole crowd is cheering and roaring in one voice for their home team as they've just won an exciting game. 
Everyone is jumping up and down, hugging strangers next to them, tears running down their faces, shouting and singing in one voice together as they celebrate their team's victory. Now, how much more unity and joy we should express as we sing of Christ's victory over sin and death, not with strangers, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ. How much more beautiful and thunderous is the sound of sinners rejoicing in their Savior. So first, exaltation, and next, God gathers us for edification. To edify means to build up. One more picture of the church that's helpful for understanding this purpose of edification uh, in corporate worship is that the church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And as individual members of a local body of Christ, we're called to build up the whole body of Christ. In fact, two chapters later, the Apostle Paul keeps repeating that term for build up over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, So that the church may be built up. Strive to excel in building up the church. Let all things be done for building up. In other words, we need one another to be built up and to build up. That means that we ought not to cut ourselves off from the body. A finger cut off from the body doesn't fare very well. It won't survive. We were meant to be connected into a body, so we ought not to sever ourselves on our own. That also means that there should be no anonymous or passive members of this body or in our gatherings. Our corporate worship is not simply about you and God, but it's about you and God and all the members that make up the body of Christ with you. You should get to know other members, and you should make yourself known to other members. And though we may not have, we might not all have prominent roles, we all have an important role to build up others in the body of Christ, even if it seems as insignificant as simply singing aloud. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. In corporate worship, we're not just singing to God, but we're also addressing one another through our singing. In other words, we're both singing and hearing songs of worship together. And as we hear one another sing, we're also encouraged to sing out these gospel truths all the more. You look around, you hear the sound of these truths, and they just resonate. They empower, they move you to recognize that these are true, and you sing it all the more. That's why congregational singing is so important. It should never just be the band singing and the congregation spectating. No, we need to hear one another sing out these gospel truths because it's one of the ways that we build one another up in the body of Christ. So whether it's singing aloud, getting to know others, serving in formal or informal ways, we all have a role to build up others and to be built up by others in the body of Christ. So exaltation, edification, and third, God gathers us for evangelism. The New Testament expects that unbelievers will be present in our times of corporate worship and that they would be convicted in their hearts and that they will begin to worship God as new believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 23, verse 23 to 25 says this, If therefore the whole church comes together 
and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The context of this passage is addressing the use of spiritual gifts for the building up of the church in corporate worship. And the point here is that whatever we do in corporate worship should be comprehensible to unbelievers. Our corporate worship is not catered to unbelievers, but it should be comprehensible to unbelievers. If they don't understand what we're saying or doing, they'll walk away saying, these folks are out of their minds. But if they can understand what we're saying and doing, then they can be cut to the heart and join us in true worship of our God. That means that our corporate worship should be comprehensible and saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. In our reading, preaching, praying, singing, and practice of the ordinances, we should hear and see how God created everyone and everything and how we are ultimately accountable to him, how we've all rebelled against God and are deserving of his just judgment, how Jesus Christ became our substitute in his life, death, and resurrection to take our punishment for sin and to give us his righteousness, how all who repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior can now be forgiven their sins and have eternal life. And how all of creation is awaiting Jesus' return to usher in the new heavens and new earth where there will be all of life worship and corporate worship of God with all of God's people forever without sin. Believers need to continually be built up by these gospel truths. And unbelievers need to hear and understand these gospel truths in order to come to saving faith. And if you're here today, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we're glad that you're here. And I hope you're hearing these gospel truths throughout our corporate worship. All of us, you, me, everyone around us, are sinners who will one day stand accountable before our holy creator for every desire, every attitude, every thought, every action. And God will either rightly condemn us for our sins, or he will rightly forgive us of our sins, because of our faith in Christ who has already bore the punishment of our sins on the cross. And if you're hearing that and understanding that, and if you're convicted of your sin and convicted of your need for Jesus, then I urge you to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I invite you to join in the worship of God together with his people today. I pray that you would do that today and that your life would never be the same. And now as believers, we should all pray for God to reveal himself and grant new life to unbelievers who are present in our corporate worship. Psalm 67 verses 1 to 3 say this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We gather for corporate worship as God's people, but we should always desire that God would extend corporate worship to all peoples. Here's a second life application. Come to corporate worship for exaltation, edification, and evangelism. If you notice, there isn't another E for entertainment or experience as a purpose for us gathering in corporate worship. 
As believers, if entertainment or experience is our reason for coming to corporate worship, then we need to repent because that's entirely self-centered. We don't come to corporate worship to be entertained by the music or the message or to consume an individual private experience. We don't come to be anonymous or passive, but we come to corporate worship to exalt God together, build up one another, and see the lost come to saving faith. So let's come with that kind of readiness and expectation. So pictures of the church, purposes of the church, and third, practices of the church in corporate worship. Everything we do, all of our practices in corporate worship must clearly be warranted in Scripture. This is often called the regulative principle. God's Word regulates what we do when we gather as a church to worship God. If we came together for Sunday celebration, I hope that we'd all feel that something was very wrong if we gathered around a rock concert or contemporary dance instead of gathering together around God's Word. There's nothing wrong with rock concerts or contemporary dance, and if you're a musician or a dancer, those may be ways that you personally express worship to God. But just because it may be how you personally worship, once we start making those things elements of our corporate worship, we are binding every individual to take part in things that Scripture doesn't necessarily warrant us to do when we're gathered together, all together. And it may very well violate certain people's consciences. So rather than being restrictive, the regulative principle actually protects the liberty of conscience of all those who are present. Though some elements may be done differently than they might, uh, from church to church, everyone can take comfort in knowing that we're only participating in elements that Scripture warrants for us to do together. So what are those elements? What are those practices of corporate worship that Scripture warrants? In short, we are to read the Word, preach the Word, pray the Word, sing the Word, and see the Word. Before we get into these five elements, I want us to understand that all of these elements make up our corporate worship. Our entire time of corporate worship is worship to God, not just the singing portions. And so we should have a posture of worshipful engagement with God and His people, not just in our singing, but throughout our entire time of corporate worship. So with that said, let's get into the first element of corporate worship. Read the Word. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13 says this, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. God's Word needs to be read when we gather together as a church because we cannot truly know God without Him revealing Himself to us. And He's done that in His Word. We cannot respond to God unless He first speaks to us. And so our entire corporate worship has elements of Scripture reading woven in as a call and response, you might say. As we read scripture to start our corporate worship, it's God who is calling us to worship him. And we respond in prayer and song and this entire time of worshiping him together. We often read scripture as God calls us to confess our sin and our faith in Christ. And then we respond by doing exactly that. We read the scripture passages that will then be exhorted and taught from in the sermon. And we respond to God's word in prayer and song. And God gets the final word in our corporate worship with the scriptural benediction, blessing us as we then scatter throughout the week to continue worshiping him. What does it say then when God's people gather and we do not read God's word? 
It says that we don't live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It says that what we have to say is more important than what God has said. It says that we, what we, it says that we value what we do more than being reminded of what God has done. It says that we don't really believe that God's word will never return empty, but will always accomplish that for which God has purposed it. Don't ever underestimate the power of the reading of God's word. For the word of God is living and active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So read the word, and second, preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So Timothy is called to preach the word. He's given the substance or the content of his preaching. He's not to preach his own ideas. He's not to preach just whatever uh, people want to hear or what's trending in culture. He's to faithfully preach the word. In other words, if you are a mailman, you don't deliver your own letters, but you deliver someone else's. If you're a waiter, you don't mess with the food as you take it from the kitchen to the table. That's why we do our best to, uh, to give our church a regular diet of expositional preaching, where the point of the biblical text is the point of the sermon applied to the life of the congregation. We expose the text. The authority of God's word rests not in what we have to say or what the congregation wants to hear, but it rests on what God has already said in his word. So read, preach, and third, pray the word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says this, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. When God's people gather, we are to lift up all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. God's people are not just called to pray personally and privately, but also corporately and publicly. We are to be a house of prayer. Mark Dever and Paul Alexander, authors of The Deliberate Church, they write this. You are either teaching the members of your congregation how to pray biblically, teaching them how to pray poorly, or teaching them not to pray at all simply by how much time you carve out in the service for prayer and how you fill that time. During our corporate worship, we always set aside time for an extended congregational prayer. We may not always directly quote scripture, but our congregational prayers are saturated with scripture and conform to God's priorities set out in scripture. We want our church to learn how to pray God's word and how to pray in light of what God values as we all hear and join in on that congregational prayer week after week. So read, preach, pray, and forth, sing the word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So how are we to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Not just by teaching and admonishing, but also singing. Singing is one of the ways that we own and affirm God's word. When we respond in song to God's word, we are in essence saying, yes, I believe and affirm these truths with all that I am. And it's not just intellectual agreement, but singing engages our emotions and affections and it aligns us to God's word. And the you in Colossians 3.16 is plural. So it's addressed to a body of believers, not just individuals. So again, singing is not just something we do personally and privately, but it's also corporate and public we should join in the singing of corporate worship. 
and we should sing songs that conform to God's word. You know, as my son was growing up, there was one song in particular that he loved to sing, but it just killed me to hear. It goes like this. Johnny, Johnny, yes, Papa. Eating sugar, no, Papa. Telling lies, no, Papa. Open your mouth, ha, ha, ha. You know, this song was teaching him not only that lying is okay, but that lying is funny. But he liked the tune of the song. It was memorable. And so he kept singing it, not knowing that it was forming him in ways that he didn't, he didn't even realize. But he would also hear the songs that we'd sing corporately at Sunday celebration. And in the back of our car one day, he started singing along to a song that we actually never taught him to sing. He started singing, Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. You know, because songs are so memorable, they have the power to form us, to shape us. And so we want to sing songs that fill our minds and hearts with God's character, that form our worldview by God's truth, and that teach us the meaning and implications of the gospel for our lives and our world. So read, preach, pray, sing, and lastly, see the word. There are two ordinances or sacraments that Jesus ordained or commanded his church to practice. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper. The ordinances have been called visible words because they make visible the word of the gospel. In baptism, we see a picture of a believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and all the benefits of salvation that are now graciously given to him in Christ. And the Lord's Supper makes visible the proclamation of the gospel, that Christ's body was broken, his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, and to join us all together into his one body. They picture, they make visible the words of the gospel. And God gives us these ordinances because he knows the weakness and frailness of our faith. We need to be reminded of his covenant with us in Christ in more tangible ways than only hearing. He wants us to see, smell, touch, and taste his word, if you will, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so as often as we have baptism and the Lord's Supper as part of our corporate worship, it supplements and confirms the gospel of Jesus Christ held out to us in God's word, in very tangible ways for us to experience. And as we close, you know, since we just focused this entire sermon on corporate worship, I want to make sure we connect it back to the all-of-life worship that we focused on last week. You know, even though we've covered each of these things in separate sermons, all-of-life worship and corporate worship are actually inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. A.W. Tozer, a former pastor in the U.S., writes this. So I've got to tell you that if you do not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship Him on one day a week. There's no such thing known in heaven as Sunday worship unless it is accompanied by Monday worship and Tuesday worship and so on. We come into God's house and say, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let us all kneel before Him. Very nice. I think it's nice to start a service that way once in a while. But when any of you men enter your office Monday morning at 9 o'clock, if you can't walk into that office and say, The Lord is in my office, let all the world be silent before Him, then you are not worshiping the Lord on Sunday. If you can't worship Him on Monday, you didn't worship Him on Sunday. If you don't worship Him on Saturday, you are not in very good shape to worship Him on Sunday. 
In other words, if we're not worshiping God in all of life, then it's unlikely we're actually worshiping him in our weekly corporate worship. Why? Because worship is a response to what we value most. And if we value other things more than God on other days of the week, then those things, rather than God, will be what our hearts value on Sunday. And if we're all honest with ourselves, I think we can say we all struggle with that. So should we just stop coming together as a church for corporate worship then? Not at all. Because corporate worship is one of the primary ways that God uses us, uh, that uses uh, to reorient our hearts back to Him. When we come together as a church and we're reminded once again that Christ has made us the family of God and an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And as we exalt Him together, build up one another and see the lost coming to saving faith. And as we're cut to the heart once again in the reading, preaching, praying, singing, and seeing of God's word. As we join together in corporate worship like that, God reorients our hearts back to Him. He enables us by His grace, through this means of grace, once again to see and respond to the worthiness of God in Christ together as a church. And so corporate worship fuels our all-of-life worship, and our all-of-life worship fuels our corporate worship. Here's the third life application. Pursue the straying sheep. Pursue the straying sheep. This might sound like an odd application, but as, we, as we've been talking about our corporate identity and relationships as a church, we shouldn't just be thinking about ourselves. It's not just about you. If corporate worship is so important to the Christian life, if corporate worship fuels all of life worship, then one of the most loving things we can do for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ whom we've covenanted to be part of this local church is to notice and care and pursue after those who have withdrawn themselves from the flock of God and are now struggling in isolation. As a church, we are the family of God and the body of Christ. So may we never become complacent with simply growing in our personal intimacy with Christ, but may we long to grow in our intimacy with Christ together as a church. So once again, the one thing is, let's come together as a church to bolster our worship of God. Let's take some time now to respond to God's word.